0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President, Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am, my pleasure to be guest hosting for Tony Perkins today. I am, fortunately... Uh, Tony is better looking. He is smarter, but I am here today. So this is what you get. Um, I am relatively new to the Family Research Council universe. I am the senior fellow for biblical worldview and strategic engagement, which means I get to think about how, uh, public policy and politics connects to a biblical worldview. And then I also get to do some stuff, uh, to interact with that and, and get involved in some nuts and bolts, uh, political action and, uh, just thinking about how we relate to the legislature. So um, a little bit about me. I spent the two years before I got here at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, where I got to start a YouTube channel called What Would You Say and really focus on the intersection of faith and politics. And for the decade prior to that, I ran a Family Policy Council in the state of Washington, and so I have uh, done social uh, policy action in the belly of the beast there in uh, Western Washington and the state of Washington, and so that I have the scars to prove it, but it 's a delight to continue doing it here in the other Washington now today, on the program, despite the fact that Tony is not with us, I hope you 'll hang around because we really do have a very interesting program. We're going to talk about uh, voter fraud, which is a conversation that people are having. Does it exist? Um, that seems to be a left-right divide right now. How serious is it if it does exist, and can anything be done about it? We'll talk about that, and then we are going to talk about the impact of the recent elections on state and local elections, the state uh, the state government level. Uh, we don't want to just focus on the White House. The White House is important, but it's not the only thing that's important in these elections. And then we will talk uh, about what happened. in In Congress as well, in the House and the Senate, and how the trends uh, that may have been expected did not develop. And then at the end, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about the contingency plans. What happens? What happens if somebody doesn't get 270 electoral votes? Uh, What then? Do we have chaos? Uh, Does the world blow up at that point? Stay tuned. We'll be discussing all that today. But first, uh, the first thing we want to talk about is to lead off this conversation is uh, voter fraud. Is it happening? How extensive is it? And there may be no one better to have this conversation with us than John Fund, who is a columnist uh, with National Review. He's also the author of Stealing Elections, How Voter Fraud Threatens Our Democracy. John, welcome to the program.
1: Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, start us off here. Tell us how should we how should we be feeling? What are you observing? What are you concerned about?
1: Well, it all started in February and March when, using the cover of COVID as an excuse, the left decided to push a wholesale change in our election laws. Rather than have people traditionally go to the polls on election day, perhaps you vote early in a government building, they used excuse of covid to say that it was completely unsafe for people to vote in the fall of the polls despite the fact that countries like south korea had just had 30 million people show up at polls to vote and they convinced several state legislatures and several state courts to change the laws very quickly or to ignore the existing laws and push for all mail balloting so nevada suddenly went to mailing a, a mail ballot to everyone in the state who was on a voter registration list. Pennsylvania Supreme Court ignored the law the legislature had passed just the year before and said, well, you can send in a ballot and if it arrives three days after the election, it will be counted. And by the way, we don't need a valid postmark to prove it was postmarked before the election and we don't even need the signature match that's valid to count the ballot. So we're seeing the bitter fruits of that uh, called silent coup in our election laws today. We're in notoriously dodgy places for voter fraud, like Detroit and Milwaukee and Philadelphia. A tsunami of mail-in ballots has arrived. The local election administrators are often trying to keep observers from fully understanding and knowing what's going on with the process. And I think many of the traditional safeguards against ballots being counted that shouldn't be counted have been thrown out the window Simply because of the per- crush of ballots, the biggest danger we have this week in our election is you can 't tell where the incompetence ends in some of these places, and the f- potential fraud begins
0: Sh- sure that you know i think that 's a, a good point now. I come from a state, Washington state, where uh, we 've been voting by uh, mail for at least a decade. And it's just normal. But it took now. a I don't, long
1: time. It took a long time to reach that point. You had several practice runs.
0: Right. And, and so that is that is my question is when it comes to voting by mail, is that something that, in your opinion, is fraudulent by nature or is it the, the way it's being executed? That's the problem.
1: No, no. Voting by mail is not fraudulent, but it's fraught with peril. The New York Times at an article a few years ago pointing out that the rejection rate of mail-in ballots is twice as high as that of any other ballot. Uh, a presidential commission chaired by Jimmy Carter, uh, a Democrat, and James Baker, a Republican, found that uh, vote-by-mail is subject to coercion, manipulation, intimidation. You can give up the secret ballot when you vote by mail, and that it should be minimized. We should have mail-in ballots, but we should not have... 80 percent, 60 percent, 50 percent, we should have 10, 15, 20 percent maybe. And, you know, Election Day is not supposed to be election month. You know, we have a, in the law, it says we have election day right now. We have election month before election day in which people voted early. And now we have election month after election day in which people go into court and try to convince the judges how people voted rather than have the people themselves decide how they voted.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point. And for some of us, it's actually not that new, but I, it is a strange it, to have election season rather than election day. Now, what are you seeing specifically? Are there are there states that you're more concerned about than others at this point?
1: Well, Philadelphia has traditionally had problems with voter fraud. There have been many elections in which more people were registered to vote in Philadelphia than they were adults over the age of 18 in the Census Bureau's count. That's called a clue there's something going wrong. Milwaukee is notorious. Um, uh, Detroit. Uh, Detroit had a city clerk removed a few years ago for either blatant incompetence or uh, extensive fraud. Southfield, Michigan, which is the fifth largest city in Michigan, the county clerk in charge of elections was recently indicted on 117 counts of voter fraud. So, you know, we have a history in these places, and it's not a pretty one.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I th- I think we've all heard reports about these dumps of votes in, in Michigan and Wisconsin. I'm thinking of specifically that uh appear to have been 100% uh for Biden or very close to 100%. What do you know about that? Are th- are those real? Are those uh, just you know the the middle of cities that actually do vote 95% for one candidate? What what do you know about those?
1: If you go into Philadelphia's public housing project and you go door to door knowing that people have a a ballot that you can help them assist with and then deliver. If you go through Philadelphia's public housing projects, you will find a 97 98% vote for Joe Biden. It's just that in, in the past, the people themselves decided whether or not they were going to go out and vote. In the case of this COVID election, people were going door to door explaining there was a new form of voting and they would help them with their ballots. And so, Yes, I think there is parts of Philadelphia where you get 98 percent votes for Biden. The question is, was it the voter making the decision to do it or were they visited by a friendly political worker who was paid to try to convince them to turn in their ballot to them?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question. And, and do you object? Um, I mean, ballot chasing is a thing in in elections. Whether it's before, uh, typically it was after an election where you're. Yeah, but is is that is that a problem? Do you think is that a threat to the way we vote? Uh, are we concerned about pressure? What, what's well, the concern there? Look,
1: I mean, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas has videotapes from Minneapolis where Elon Omar's political machine is seen going door to door in apartment buildings, collecting ballots and then delivering them. Um, You know, the traditional approach is you can turn in your own ballot. You can turn in a ballot for a a close relative, but you can't go neighborhood to neighborhood collecting ballots while being paid to do so and then delivering them en masse, or maybe in some cases, if you suspect they're voting the wrong way, not delivering them. Uh, This ballot harvesting... You know, it may have been legalized in California. That doesn't make it right, and it doesn't mean that we have more honest elections. We probably have less honest elections as a result.
0: There have been a number of lawsuits filed by the the Trump campaign now. What do you know about them? What do you think the chance of success is?
1: Well, Trump is filing lawsuits in four or five states, Nevada, Georgia, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, maybe some others. Uh, As it is right now in all of those states I just mentioned, uh, right now Joe Biden is in the lead in the unofficial vote count. So Trump would have to overturn those results, convince a court that there was enough systemic fraud, and a pattern of fraud, that the results should be set aside. Uh, He might be able to do that in one or two states, Pennsylvania being the most likely. But in all four or five, that's a reach. And that's why you know the lesson here is the left has subverted our election laws for twenty years the covid uh, con, which I call it, is the, just the latest example of that. The time to stop voter fraud is before the election day, not after the election day, when it's really hard to assemble a record that would satisfy a judge to overturn an election result.
0: And we're actually going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky about the scenario in which an election gets set aside and maybe nobody gets to 270 uh, electoral votes. So stick around for that. But, um, John, what do you think about the what should happen Moving forward, I think you know we just spent four years where you know, about a third of the country thought the president was elected uh, illegitimately, and we may be heading into another time, another four years, where a, a third of the country believes that the president is elected uh, illegitimately. How do we fix this?
1: Well, the first thing we should do is calm down and recognize that there is we are blessed with a legal process. Uh, People go to court, they make claims, they present evidence, judges hear them, judges render a decision, then there's an appeal to another higher court, and ultimately there can be an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And all of that happened relatively smoothly in Bush v. Gore in 2000 and the Florida recount. So we should take a deep breath and recognize we have a system that has endured for 240 years. It's worked pretty well, and it's going to work now if if we let it happen. What we shouldn't let happen is a bunch of election bureaucrats conceal what they're doing, not be transparent, not let observers in to figure out what's going on and not answering basic questions about the procedures. It would also help if the president, when he comes out and says, I won the election and it was rigged, if he either presented evidence um, that would convince uh, an independent minded person of that or point to the fact that he will be presenting evidence very quickly and in a very comprehensive way that people can understand because simply asserting you won the election uh, by saying i won the election isn't helpful if you're president of the united states it's not going to change anyone's mind
0: no i i would agree with that and And John, we got about one minute left here. And very quickly, do you think there's a role moving forward for legislative action to create some consistency or uh, more transparency or basically create a system, uh, a way for the public to have more trust in the outcome of
1: elections? Well, yes. And the American people support this. Uh, The American people want safeguards on mail-in voting. They want signature verification. They want voter ID. In fact, Voter ID is supported by more minority voters than white voters uh, as a means of people proving who they say they are when they appear at the election uh, polling place. So there are all kinds of common sense reforms. You could even take the social security card and put a photo on it and make that an acceptable form of ID. But that was blocked by Al, blocked by Al Sharpton during the Obama administration. John, There's I'm going to have to cut of you. Things that can be done. Yeah,
0: I'm going to have to cut you off right there because we are out of time. John fun from National Review, really appreciate your time. Stay tuned because in the next segment we'll be talking to Keena Gonzalez about state and local elections.
3: Hey, Matt.
4: Hey, Hannah.
3: What's going on? Why so gloomy?
4: Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it.
3: Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do?
4: Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it.
3: Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out.
4: When did they start? I, I would be so far behind.
3: Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading.
4: Nice. Where can I find this?
3: Go to FRC.org slash Bible and you can get started.
4: Where's that again?
3: FRC.org slash Bible.
4: Got it. Checking it out now.
3: In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our biblical worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular Biblical Principles for Political Engagement is now available in Spanish. All of these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org slash worldview.
5: Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Uh, while we are all following what's happening throughout the country in the elections... We wanted to focus for a minute on the state and local developments, and in order to do that, we're going to bring in FRC's Director of State and Local Affairs and all-around good guy, Kana Gonzalez. Kana, welcome to the program.
6: Well, I wouldn't carry things too far, Joseph, but it's good to be with you.
0: Well, it's good to have you. I, you know, people are uh, nervous about what's going on at the White House, but talk to us about what's going on locally. Is there any good news that you can share with people?
6: man is there ever conservatives had a great night on Tuesday and while the rest of the nation is focused on understandably the presidential race there is a lot of good news at the state level Um, to set some context Joseph during the Obama administration Republicans had incredible elections year over year over year pro-life pro-family Republican conservatives came to dominate the state legislatures in the 50 states at unprecedented historic levels as far back as partisan control has been measured. And that dominance has built and then continued under Trump. That said, a lot of observers, and I confess at times, myself included, have wondered if there would be sort of a reversion to the mean if, if those high high levels of conservatives at the state level, uh, elected officials at the state level, would be a high watermark. And instead, what we have seen is that it's a new normal. And so uh, Democrats uh, have been very frustrated at the state level and have been pushing to, in this election in particular, had targeted 10 legislative chambers to try to flip them from Republican control to Democrat control and spent $88 million at the state level alone to flip these small uh, state house, state senator races, and so far have failed to flip a single chamber. As a matter of fact, in several states, including Montana and Florida, um, they, the Republicans actually gained seats And in New Hampshire, they actually flipped both chambers Republican. That's
0: that's incredible, because you're right. I mean, I I know what happened during the Obama administration seemed like it was going to be an anomaly. What do you attribute this to? Why, since 2008, when Obama took office, why has there been such conservative and Republican growth at the state legislative level that seems to be holding?
6: Well... I think there are a lot of reasons, but I think the overarching reason, um, some of the contributing factors have to do with the fact that Obama, for all of his electioneering skills, and he was a very skilled at elections, just had no coattails. Uh, recall that Republicans have taken and kept the Senate um, uh, even uh, even now. At the state level, this was much more pronounced. There simply were no Democrat coattails, but I think it also points to the overarching fact that the National Democrat Party has become much more liberal, much more radical than mainstream, Main Street America. And so the elections that are close to home, where laws are actually passed, the majority of laws that are actually passed, affect people in their everyday lives, um, I think are is more Reflective of where people are, where the electorate is, where Americans are in general
0: yeah. you know in in my home state of Texas, there were a lot of there 's a lot of national money that came into the state in an attempt to Take over the state legislature and flip the state legislature. And I know that Texas is not the only place that happened. And clearly, this is not just about, you know, people in New Hampshire caring about New Hampshire and people in Texas caring about Texas. This is, there's a national emphasis on some of these. Tell us why that is. What are the implications uh, for what happened at the state level around the country? There
6: are two quick implications. One is pro life, pro family policy. People may not know this, Joseph, but since 2010, when Republicans had that wave election, the majority, over half of the pro-life laws that have been passed since Roe v. Wade uh, in 1973 have been passed in the last 10 years at the state level. That's an amazing statistic. And so this has long-term policy implications at the state level as Republicans, uh, pro-life, pro-family, conservative Republicans, retain and in many cases increase the margins at the state level. But there's another factor coming up that's unique to this election and every election every 10 years, which is that we're heading into a period where there will be a reapportionment of the House of Representatives based on the 10-year census. And so those lines in 38 states, those congressional district lines are set in part or in whole by the state legislature. So a legislature, which is controlled by Democrats, can gerrymander those lines and seek to increase their hold, which I believe is slipping uh, nationally, and try to entrench their their grip on certain seats in the House of Representatives. But with Republicans in control of so many states, uh, we are going to see uh, probably about a decade of fruit born from this election. Yeah,
0: and I think that is an important point for people to realize is because so much leading up to a presidential election, so much attention is focused on what's going to happen at the White House. But the people, the operatives on the ground, they understand that these state legislative races matter, not just because of what they mean for the state, but because of what they mean for the country. And the fact that states draw their own congressional districts, which affects what's going on in Washington, D.C., they do place a tremendous amount of priority. On those state house races, which is, and and that only happens every 10 years. And this was their window of opportunity. And the left tried to seize that window of opportunity, but. It does not look like it was successful, and that's really good, uh, not just for this next year, but for the next decade. Now, Kena, very quickly, if you could, um, we've got about 45 seconds left, but highlight some at the state legislative level. What are some of the policy issues that are that that might the opportunities that might be presented because of what happened in the state legislature?
6: Well, FRC has been working for this moment. We have model legislation on life and religious liberty that we're excited to introduce into the states. We have a comprehensive bill that will finally defund Planned Parenthood to the fullest extent allowable by law at the state level. We have uh, a bill that will prevent minors from being prematurely transitioned medically from one sex to another gender. And so we're very excited about how this opens up the playing field for 2021. That's awesome. I have to cut you
0: off because we are out of time. But thank you so much for what you're doing. We'll come back after the break to talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C.
3: Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated Pro-Life Map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash prolifemaps.
6: Oh man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today.
3: Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Fur map. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I'd definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit FRC.org slash app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store.
6: Okay, that's Stand Firm.
3: Yep, Stand Firm.
6: How do you know all this?
3: Because I'm a SageCon. But that's another story. Huh?
0: Welcome back to the program. I'm Joseph Backholm, filling in for Tony Perkins today. And one of the things that we are interested in coming out of this election, though, the... White House race is getting most of the attention. It's what else is going on in Washington, D.C., what's happening in Congress, and what does it mean for the issues that we care about? And here to talk about it today with me is FRC's Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs, Travis Weber. Travis, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So tell us
2: what is happening in Congress yeah, I think Joseph. Overall, the story uh, in Congress on the federal side of of uh, you know of the election, which centered around Tuesday, um, is a positive one. Overall, the House, uh, we have what almost certainly looks to be a net loss for Democrats, net gain for Republicans. I think the large story here is that the progressive, aggressive, progressive vision of House Democrats did not resonate with the American people overall. Instead, um, uh, you know, voters are electing more pro-life, pro-family, pro-religious freedom candidates into office. And right now we have the final count as of now, 209 Democrats, 293 Republicans, 33 outstanding. But right now, Republicans have an equine of six seats. Pending the outstanding results, we could see more. So in the House, we're looking at a good picture right now. Now put that into context for us because there's been a lot of ink spilled on
0: how wrong the pollsters were about what was going to happen in the White House. Whatever direction it goes, it was not the the landslide that, that many had predicted. What was expected to happen in Congress?
2: Yeah, I think people expected uh, Democrats to pick up more seats and to make gains, and frankly, in the Senate as well. So really, the story here is the the apparent difference between what we're hearing from most of the media on the presidential race and the realities of what's happening in the House and Senate. Uh, there appears to be a major disconnect. So uh, it appears that the American people have have uh, added to the, the – um, the number of seats occupied by conservatives, social conservatives, many of these strong pro lifers uh, pro family pro freedom candidates so so you know that 's the real interesting uh, uh, fact about where we're at right now, mm-hmm. an anomaly between the where the presidential race appears to be headed per the reporting uh, or so-called reporting, what we're hearing from the media right. and from these states that are still in play, and the clear picture of Republican gains and defense of their gains in the Senate. Uh, things are a little unclear in the Senate because yeah. we may have some runoffs into January in Georgia, but certainly not the slaughter of Republican uh, majorities in the Senate and Republican seats in the House that many predicted. And this is really unusual. And I think it's it's
0: since 1886, I think is the year, that a Democrat was, 1886 was the last time a Democrat president entered office without a Democrat
2: Senate and House. So this really is unusual. Very, very unusual. You, you have, you have a Republicans being elected and reelected um, at the same time that that we don't um, uh, you, you have you have what what may be a Democrat president occupying right. the White House, you know, and a lot of really positive notes for us here. Um, good candidates being elected uh, across the board in the House, um, for example, uh, Michelle Fishbaugh picking up a seat in Minnesota. In total, we have 15 pro-life conservative women coming in uh, to to the House record setting number of Republican women who are going to be pro-life conservatives in the House. In the Senate, uh, you know, you have, we have a lot of seats that were defended or appear to be defended successfully. Uh, Senator Daines out of Montana, Jer- Joni Ernst in Iowa, and then Lindsey Graham, uh, Mitch McConnell, Roger Marshall in Kansas. Overall, you know, despite the uncertainty in the Senate, things are positive for uh, social conservative leaders in the Senate. And, and I think one of the...
0: It was something like 175 million dollars that was spent on Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. Is that? I think that's the number that I saw.
2: right around there. a Ton of money, record-setting amounts of money being poured into defeating these uh, conservative leaders in the Senate. And both of them won by wide margins. Wide margins. You know, certainly. Uh, you know, we were hearing. From again, from those who were trusted to to report the you know, supposed facts on the ground, hearing about all the, the, the closeness of the race in yeah. South Carolina with Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, a lot of fear being stoked about that. He, he ran away with that race. Uh, that's good to see. Obviously, him, Mitch McConnell, um, uh, Senator Ernst and others involved in the Amy Barrett confirmation in in October. A, a, another, um, you know, successful action by the Senate and President Trump, confirming a solid original right. justice to the Supreme Court. They were all involved in that and they all won their races. Right. Let's talk about Georgia a little bit with the, the Senate races because it looks like there could be two runoff races. Is that what's going to happen? It looks like that. Uh, Senator Perdue, Senator Lef- uh, Loeffler uh, down there in Georgia. Um, both failing to reach 50 percent of the vote so we'll get a runoff in january but um you know we we believe things look good to send both of these uh conservatives back to the senate and and what would happen in a in a runoff race because georgia has uh, an unusual
0: amount of attention it used to be a, a state that was just solidly red and and wasn't discussed in the way that other swing states were but president uh well, Vice President Biden has recently taken the lead in Georgia, could end up winning that state. What do you think that means, if anything, for a potential runoff?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, obviously the votes are still being tabulated down there. And Georgia has been a point of focus among the other states that we're keeping an eye on. Things are very close. Uh, certainly, you know, these runoffs have been triggered in in the case of Purdue, at least uh, by uh, votes that are lately coming in that continue to seem to trickle in uh, to the final tabulation in Georgia, uh, but um, you know here again, um, you know these are the the, the races are going to be decided in January, regardless of how the presidential race shakes up. So we'll have to wait and see. But the point is, we need to stay vigilant, continue to be involved.
0: That's right, and, and we are going to. Stay vigilant, and we will be tracking this. And uh, because so many issues do depend on not only what's going on in the White House, but in Congress as well. And so we look forward to keeping you abreast of all those issues. And coming up next, we're going to follow, dig a little bit deeper into the White House race with Hans von Spakovsky uh, from the Heritage Foundation, and talk about what might happen next.
7: Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com ways to read. That's frcblog.com ways to read.
8: When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators... Particularly Democrats have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit FRC.org/slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st
4: century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality.
0: Welcome back to the program. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in today for Tony Perkins here on Washington Watch. And we've covered a lot of what has happened at the state level and even what is happening in Congress electorally, but there's still so much interest in what in the world is going to happen with the White House. And unfortunately, we don't seem to be able to uh, settle these races quietly and neatly. And we don't know exactly what the future is going to be, but we have brought in one of the best people in the world to talk about what the future could be uh, and we are proud to welcome today a senior f- legal fellow at the heritage foundation hans von spakovsky hans thank you so much for taking some time today
9: Josie, thanks for having me on
0: yes well at the, at the start of this conversation just tell us what you you're observing this like we all are uh, but you know a lot more about it than a lot of us do what's your gut where are you at what do you what are you seeing
9: well, look, the difficulty that the uh, uh, president's campaign has, you know, they, they have filed lawsuits in a number of uh, states where the voting is still going on. These are battleground states, places like uh, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, and Nevada. They just, I think, filed yesterday. Uh, but, look, here's the problem. They, have, You know, they're making, they're, they're making claims in their lawsuits. Uh, like, for instance, you know, in Philadelphia and uh, in Detroit, Michigan, GOP observers were locked out, uh, even though they had a legal right to be there to observe the uh, absentee ballot counting process. And so, you know, so far they've already gotten, for example, in Michigan, courts ruling against them. They had a similar lawsuit they filed in Georgia uh, in one of the counties there because they had a witness who said that um, election officials were processing absentee ballots that had come in after the state deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots. Um Look, here's the difficulty the president's campaign has to dispute the outcome of the elections in those states if if he loses. Uh, Gathering the evidence needed in a court of law of misconduct, um, fraud and other errors that is sufficient to show that the outcome of the election was compromised is extremely difficult. It's it's time intensive. It's very expensive. And remember after an election is over, you only have a very short period of time in which to contest the outcome. Right. So, tr- trying to get enough evidence together to show, for example, that look, if you le- if you lose a state by twenty thousand votes, it's pretty difficult to find evidence that uh, calls into question those twenty thousand votes. That's right, and fraud and, you know, or, or and other problems.
0: I think we we recognize that litigation is a, is a time-consuming problem. Um, you mentioned right. time and you mentioned money. I don't get the sense that money is going to be a challenge for him, but time could be a challenge for him. Yes, do, but it, wh- it, it is. But what happens in this scenario? I mean, wh- wh- what's the uh, procedurally? Is this something where all they have to do is prove that there's an issue before it gets certified, or do they have to actually win their case before it gets certified?
9: No, what will happen is election officials will look. They're going to certify the results of the election. Once once it's certified, you can file a lawsuit contesting the outcome and making your claims that you know however many votes you think um, shouldn't have been counted uh, and and uh, whatever. Um, but like I said, ga- gathering enough. Look, it's one thing if. You have an election like you had in North Carolina. Remember, two years ago, the congressional race in the 9th District there was overturned. Mm -hmm. The margin of victory there was only 905 votes. And it didn't take very long to find out that there was absentee ballot fraud uh, going on that compromised those 905 votes. But if you lose an entire state in a statewide election, like I said, by 10,000 votes, 20,000 votes, uh, look, uh, think about how much time it takes to call up and try to interview t- 10,000 voters to try to find out if their ballot – if somebody else submitted their ballot for them or whether they're, they were real voters or not or whether it was fake. Or not. I, it, the amount of time you have to gather kind of evidence, it's almost impossible in the short period of time you have. And, and the other big problem is – and I hate to be pessimistic about this, but the reality is that um, – Judges and courts are extremely reluctant to overturn elections, and courts often, even when they have substantial evidence in front of them that the results of the elections were compromised by wrongdoing, they won't always uh, use that to overturn an election. So I got to tell you, uh, in the states where the president is is behind and losing, um, he's got a real uphill battle in the courts. I overturn the election
0: result. Sure, and but I and I think it's important on, on that point to to highlight that it's actually a good thing that that courts are not excited to jump in and overturn the results of an election because, and, and that is a that is a conservative principle for all of us who are right. are opposed to judicial activism. Um, we, you know, it may be it may feel convenient convenient at times, but we do not want to live in a world where judges get to jump in and just change election results because they want to or they saw something that maybe um, they, they didn't quite agree with. But let, let's walk down this, Hans, a little bit, because I, you know, we have four five states that are, you know, and I don't like the word called because it's as if the media opinion that it's over has some kind of legal significance. But there's there's five states. We, we're, we're looking at Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Nevada and Arizona at this moment, which seem to have something uh, we don't know for sure what the result is going to be. What happens if nobody actually gets to 270? There's a scenario in which it actually ends up tied 269. I've heard some scenarios discussed where um, nobody gets to 270 simply because a state doesn't have the time. They are unable to certify their results before the law requires them to. Uh, Take us through that kind of a scenario and what happens if nobody gets to 270? Uh,
9: In that case, the Constitution kicks in and the U.S. House of Representatives chooses who the president will be amongst the top three candidates um, in the presidential race. Each state, however, only gets one vote. So in any any particular state, the congressional delegation will have to get together and, and vote on which candidate they want, and the majority vote will win, and that state will then cast their one vote for whoever the majority of the congressional delegation picked.
0: And, and so that's different because there it looks likely that there will be a Democrat majority in the House of Representatives. But does that matter in this case?
9: No, what matters is who controls the state delegation.
0: And where are we at right now on, on that? Is that, is that bef- before the election or after the election results in the House of Representatives? No,
9: it'll be with the new Congress
0: and and so who who controls the majority of the state congressional delegations in the new congress or do we even know that yet
9: I, I don't think I, 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 off the top of my head, I have to say yeah. I, I don't know that.
0: Okay. And I, I believe before coming into this election, the Republicans had 26 state delegations. Yeah. Um, and right. based on the results that we've seen, uh, it doesn't look like they're going to lose those. Now, um, another interesting thing though. You said that the House of Representatives gets to choose from among the top three candidates. Now. Right. Who's the third? Do you even know that? Not that I think that's a realistic possibility, but who is the third?
9: I, I haven't been paying any attention to that, um, and I'm assuming that uh, there, there's – I don't think there will be a third candidate because um, no no third candidate has won any state. So oh, you the have to win some. Are the libertarians are the – That's right. Yeah. You've you got to win at least one state to be – uh, considered a third candidate, and there is yeah. no third. So, candidate so
0: Kanye whatsoever. is not eligible in that scenario. <laughs> no, either. I think he got some votes in Mississippi.
9: Yeah, no, I I heard that. In fact, my my daughter was going through and looking at some of the election results, and she couldn't. She was like expressing astonishment that anybody had actually cast votes for him.
0: Well. Everybody. Every year there's a there's this, you know, there's that guy out there who gets a surprising number of votes from people and, you know, protest votes. Now, let's again, let's walk 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 down this. uh, Nobody gets two seventy scenario for a second again. Um, And we we just talked about how the House selects who the president would be in that scenario. What about the vice president?
9: Uh, That's up to the U.S. Senate.
0: And and so in the in the same way, do they vote state delegations, yeah. or do they vote? Does each person get to have a vote in the Senate?
9: You know, uh, since the since the you know that's actually a good question, and I I uh, I hadn't even looked at that provision because we're so concentrating on the president that I sure. uh, I didn't look at that provision in the Constitution.
0: Well, well, it's possible. It seems that you could have a scenario where you have a uh, a president trump and a vice president kamala harris or would it be biden yes uh
9: you know that that's a i I think it would be one of the vice presidential candidates i don't think it would be
0: well i i I would I, i for one think the entertainment value of of that ticket would be um would be worth watching to see how uh Trump and Harris got along together if they were trying to govern. Well,
9: actually, you no. Know, that's one of the reasons we changed the Constitution from the original right. way, because of the fact that we, John Adams became president. Thomas Jefferson was vice president, and they were the, the worst of political enemies.
0: Right. And, 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 and so now we have tickets where they run together um, because they've decided right. it's just uh, it makes more sense to have them on the same team. And I'm inclined to agree with that. And I think history has proven that to be uh, the, the right answer to that question. Now, there's some other kind of novel scenarios here, and, and I, don't, I didn't prep you for this, so I don't even know if you're prepared to talk about it. But some of these, uh, in, the, in the weeds of the Constitution, the, the opportunity for state legislatures to actually determine who their state electors go to irrespective of what the vote is, are you, is that something that you have any experience with and, 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 and understand that process?
9: Yeah, I know. In fact, the, the the Constitution specifically gives state legislatures uh, full power to decide how electors will be chosen. And while I know everybody today is used to the idea that uh, we engage in a popular vote to pick which set of electors will represent our state, um, that what didn't happen in the first uh, you know, two or three decades of um Uh, Of the country, uh, electors in some states were chosen by the state legislature, not not through a popular vote in in that state.
0: Is that because they didn't have a vote at all? Early on, there was no vote. It was just the legislature voted. Who do we want to be president?
9: Yeah, the legislature would pick the electors and uh, the electors would then go to to the vote. I think by I think by like 1824, um, everybody had switched to a, a popular vote. For the electors who would represent the state. But um, there's actually nothing that, well, other than popular opinion, <laughs> there's yeah. nothing that actually would prevent a state today from saying, oh, nope, nobody's going to vote for uh, electors in this state. The state legislature is just going to pick a slate of electors.
0: Has that happened? Never
9: happened. Never happened politically, but yeah. but it, it, constitutionally, it's acceptable.
0: Yeah, and, and so in theory, some state, there's massive voter fraud that is discovered, and the state legislature decides that we have no confidence in the result of this election because of X, Y, and Z. The legislature could convene itself and say... Because of extraordinary circumstances, um, we have decided to take the task upon ourselves of determining who the electors for our state will be, and we are going to vote on that. That's a scenario.
9: That, that, yes. Uh, Constitutionally, that is absolutely possible.
0: Yeah. Practically, I don't know that that's that's realistic, though.
9: No, I I, I think from a practical political standpoint, uh, that's not going to happen. But. But uh, constitutionally, if you, had, if you had legislators who were willing to do it, they would perfectly would with, be within their legal authority to do that. Uh, it, it,
0: it, I think that would be the uh, the nuclear option for any state who wanted to take that on. And uh, if yeah. if there was, <laughs> would. I, I don't know how many people would be willing to take on that kind of uh, po- that kind of political fight that would result from this. But um, we've got a couple minutes left here. Talk to us about how long. You know, we're three days out from the election. We don't have we you know, we may have a sense of where this is headed. When do you think we are going to have a final answer and everybody's going to be moving on?
9: I I think actually within uh, look, I I think we'll get final counts from the states, uh, if not by this weekend, by early next week. Um, Then the litigation that's been filed, if the Trump campaign continues, it will have to run its course. Uh, I think that's going to happen very quickly, you know. Court cases usually can take a lot of time, but this is a case where the courts and all the judges are well aware of the big looming deadline, and that's the meeting of the Electoral College on December 14th to cast their votes. So they they know that the results have to be uh, finished uh, really by the end of November, beginning of December, and I think they'll act very quickly either – in favor of or negatively, on um, the litigation filed by the president.
0: Has there been any uh, litigation around, and how often, I should say, how often is there litigation that actually ends up changing the outcome of an election, and what is the issue when that happens? How has this been done successfully?
9: Uh, It's usually ordered by a court, and it does happen occasionally. Um, We saw it most recently recently. Uh, in Patterson, New Jersey. But it's never happened in a presidential race, but we do see it in local races and state races and occasionally in a federal race like a congressional race. Uh, Within the last three months, you know, Patterson, New Jersey held a municipal election uh, all by mail because of COVID-19. And after four locals, including a city council member, were charged with, criminally charged with absentee ballot fraud, a, a court overturned that city council election and ordered a new election. Same thing happened in uh, North Carolina two years ago, ninth Congressional District. Again, they, they discovered absentee ballot fraud scheme. They charged seven locals, including a political consultant and his staff, uh, for engaging in criminal absentee ballot fraud. and i, I got to cut you off no there because
0: we are we are out of time. But the answer is it's possible, but it doesn't seem likely. Hans von Spakovsky, Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for your time and joining us today. Appreciate it very
9: much. Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: This is Joseph back home filling in for Tony Perkins today. It has been a pleasure to be with you. For more information about the guests you've heard today, go to TonyPerkins.com. We'll look forward to talking to you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported.